This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are talking with Catherine Gant about body image issues, eating disorders, and disordered eating, especially as it relates to pregnancy and postpartum, and how it can impact your mental health. Catherine is an eating disorder dietitian, certified yoga instructor, and mom of two. And she uses her years of experience of nutrition training, eating disorder experience, and yoga to help people change their relationship with food and their bodies. We have a really fantastic discussion around some of the challenges in OB offices or with care providers who maybe don't have the knowledge or information or education or even resources to provide to clients or patients who are dealing with disordered eating or body image issues. We also touch on the weight bias in the medical field and the connection to that and diet culture contributions to body image struggles in postpartum as well as in pregnancy. Catherine focuses her work on pregnancy and postpartum nutrition, mindful, intuitive eating, health at every size, and non-diet approaches when counseling clients. She serves on the executive board of WNC International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. She's really passionate about making sure that pregnant and postpartum moms know that they have options when it comes to moving through pregnancy and their relationship with food and their body. So let's meet Catherine. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. We haven't really touched on eating disorders and pregnancy in a little while. So I'm, I'm really glad that coming back to that on this podcast, because you know how important it is. And from a mental health perspective, it's not thought of very often, unfortunately, when it comes to perinatal issues. So it's really, really, really important. I'm interested in how you got to kind of marry these specialties. Sure. So I had been a dietitian 
working in specifically just eating disorders for about five years and then had my first child and was just really excited to work with moms and support moms. And I just started to see this huge divide between eating disorder diagnoses or people who'd been in recovery and then having issues come back up in pregnancy and postpartum and it really just being missed. Mm -hmm. And so when I was with the group practice, I just started requesting all of the pregnant people and all of the postpartum people to really support them. And then a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted that to really be my focus. And so I started my own practice where I could connect with a lot of the OBs in my area and really just continue to reach that specific population who just really falls through the cracks in terms of that specific disordered eating support in that pregnancy postpartum time. What's been, uh, I guess, kind of the reception to what you're bringing, like in OB clinics or places where you're saying like, hey, this is a a thing? It's a mixed bag, Uh (laughs) for sure. I would say it's a lot better than it used to be. I would say I get a lot more understanding of the fact that eating disorders are much more prevalent than believed, that eating disorders exist in all body sizes, and a lot more willingness to work with me, listen to my recommendations when they're working with their moms. I still have some clinics who, you know, are not just as aware of how big of a problem it is or or still maybe have some weight bias around eating disorders. And so it's a mixed bag for sure, but getting better. That's the positive. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear that it's sort of trending towards the better. I'm also interested to know more when you say weight bias, what are you seeing in yes. those clinics or in what's sort of still prevalent? Yes. So I still see a ton of weight loss recommendations for people in larger bodies trying to get pregnant, even in pregnancy or advising them to gain very, very low amounts of weight in pregnancy and not screening at all to see if there's an eating disorder history. So kind of just throwing out these diet recommendations in pregnancy without an understanding of their history or the risks associated with that. And then in postpartum too, just this kind of unintentional, I think at times reinforcement of bouncing back and weight loss in postpartum that can be very, very triggering for a lot of women and eating disorder or no eating disorder can really create a negative body association. Um, Right. Maybe it would be, yeah, thank you for that. It's, I guess the thinness being this uh, like ideal in Mm -hmm. all scenarios of life is so very upsetting and, and flawed and incomplete also like that being thin doesn't necessarily equal being healthy and being overweight or living in a larger body doesn't necessarily mean unhealthy, but it's so tightly connected to those kind of two, not necessarily extremes, but shorthand flawed ideas. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think that's still the big disconnect I see with a lot of providers is that if we look a certain way, that gives us a lot of information. And it really doesn't. It tells us very little about a person by just looking at their body. And so I think that is a lot of that kind of thin privilege that I see come up in pregnancy, and especially in postpartum, just this lack of that I see with that thin privilege piece is a lot of providers praising a certain body type, and almost scolding 
a larger body type. And some of the most disordered clients I've worked with have been pregnant women in smaller, what would be quote, normal size bodies, but that was praised by their providers. So that was just very confusing for them. Right, for sure. So in terms of screening, what would be you alluded to that, that they're not necessarily screening for eating disorders or disordered eating or actually, I'm going to back it up even farther before we get to that. Can you just a little bit differentiate between eating disorder and disordered eating? Yes, that's a great question. So an eating disorder is a diagnosed mental illness. It's in the DSM. That's when you think of things like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. Those are the most well-known eating disorders and there's specific criteria that must be met in order to have that diagnosis. Disordered eating is a little bit of a broader term and it can encompass lots of different things. So it can encompass parts of a diagnosis. So restrictive eating, hyper focus on calories, over exercise, periods of out of control eating. So elements of an eating disorder, but perhaps they don't meet the full criteria or it can border on things like orthorexia, which is just kind of this like hyper focus on a quote healthy way of eating, which is actually quite restrictive and disordered. So it kind of is the larger umbrella of capturing people who are having a difficult relationship to food, but don't quite fit into a specific diagnosis. Man, I don't know if this is too specific of a question, but there's people don't necessarily have to be dealing with those things in order to have also body image struggles, but they're connected often. Yes, absolutely. And I do see both. I see people Mm -hmm. who with in the context of their connection with food, there is a struggle around body image. And then I see a lot of women who really their relationship to food is quite positive, but the way they connect to their body is quite disordered or quite negative. And those things can exist separately. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that a little bit more because it's, I don't know, just with a lot of things, especially as it relates to women's health and women's bodies, um, things get sort of conflated or confused, meaning like we don't talk about it enough. So people don't have enough information to, to understand even what's going on for themselves, let alone to explain it to a provider, let alone maybe know what's going on if a provider is asking the wrong questions. Right. And, you know, and I think that ties in a lot to the way our culture is, is a lot of women don't think of it as a problem, right? That because our culture is so focused on dieting, weight loss, good food, bad food, it can feel like this isn't disordered. This is just what is expected. This is normal. Or I am doing something that feels abnormal, like feeling as if I'm out of control with eating. So I'm going to be very private about it and not share it because I feel shame. And then if the provider isn't asking any questions or they're perhaps supporting certain ways of eating in pregnancy and postpartum, it really can lead to being unsure if there is an issue. Right. I'm thinking that made me think of people who might be hearing, you know, stuff from their provider about don't gain too much weight or whatever that is. And outwardly 
saying okay, but inwardly maybe feeling scared or, or worried or ashamed or, you know. Yeah. Yes. And that's one of the big things when I do talk to providers is even if you are worried, a lot of providers have a hard time when I say, let's just not give any weight recommendations to clients Mm -hmm. or patients. They, I get a lot of pushback on that probably more than anything. And so what I try and shift it to is be curious then if you are concerned about how much weight someone is gaining in their pregnancy, be curious about that. What is your day-to-day diet looking like? Do you feel comfortable around food choices? Do you have access to food? How do you feel when you're eating during the day? And that can give us a lot of information and come from a less shaming point of view Mm -hmm. and can hopefully encourage women to share more about how they're eating versus being afraid to, Mm -hmm. if their OB is worried they've gained too much weight. Yeah. So you kind of giving providers a direction on how to interact in a way that could, could be more supportive. That makes a ton of sense because I, I can't imagine this is necessarily thoroughly addressed in medical school <laughs> or, or even after that, you know, for a lot of people mm-hmm. going through school is just the first part and additional training mm-hmm. for whatever the discipline is, is required for this, like understanding the nuance. It really is. And I really love OBs. It, it can sometimes sound when I do these talk, I don't like OBs, but I love them. I work with so many of them and I love the work they do and the care they provide to their patients. And I think it is often just a lack of training or understanding. Mm-hmm. And I did a talk at a conference last year and it was for perinatal providers. And I was like, who here works with eating disorders? And very few people raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, actually all of you do. <laughs> I was like, cause you might not know it, but you are absolutely working with women with eating disorders. If you work with women. <laughs> so mm-hmm. It's, it's about knowing how they might show up, understanding that there are just so many variations to disordered eating and eating disorders. And, and how can we start screening in a way that's reasonable? I understand they're not going to do these long screening tests that take a really long time, but even a few simple questions can be helpful. Just simply asking, have you ever had a history of an eating disorder? That's Mm -hmm rarely asked and that can give a ton of information Mm -hmm. or just asking, you know, how are you feeling around food? You know, does it feel comfortable or does it feel uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. And, and simple questions like that can really provide a lot of information. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it. And their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high quality traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable, and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. 
Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mom and mind for 25% off. This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready-to-eat Factor meals. And ready-to-eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high-protein and calorie-smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic-roasted green beans. This is restaurant-quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order, as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. I assume, too, that maybe a similar issue arises for eating disorder specific support as it does with all mental health support when it as related to providers, OBs or whatever other perinatal mm-hmm. provider is that potentially one, they're not getting training or additional information on what to look for. And then also where to send people if there is a concern or the patient or client is is having some challenges. Sometimes providers don't ask questions because they don't know what to do after if somebody is struggling. So I want to come back to screening in just a moment, but I assume that since you're in a clinic that people would be referred to you if they do tell their provider that they're having challenges. Yes. And I have my own practice and I've just contracted with some OBs. Mm -hmm. And even with the OBs I've contracted with, I still get far more gestational diabetes referrals and things like that Mm. compared to eating disorders. Mm -hmm. But when I do first meet OBs, that is something I hear all the time is I don't even know where to send them. When I, if they do tell me that they're having an issue with food, I'm unsure what to then do. And so I do think that is a barrier. There's one, I would say, and a lack of eating disorder specific dietitians. Mm and therapist and Mm -hmm. certain areas, but then even more specialized of what to do with it while they're pregnant Mm -hmm. and in postpartum, which is just its whole other unique timeframe. So it can feel really overwhelming to know what to do once you have that information about the patient. Right. Then going back to screening, you mentioned that there's just a couple of initial questions that providers could ask, but what are the other options for screening? So there are Oh, you mean just like different types of questions? Either questions or you also alluded to like longer uh, questionnaire mm-hmm. forms that yes. maybe an yeah. OB is not trained to do, but what are just in general screenings that could be used? Sure. So yes. So there are some already kind of outlined screenings. There's the scoff, which is one that I usually recommend. It's short, it's concise. It gives a lot of information. It can be quickly done by a nurse. And then I have some OBs that will just work in two or three kind of quick questions. You know, do you have a history of 
disordered eating? Do you currently struggle with anything around food? You know, it can be vague and they can still get information. Mm -hmm. Also, sometimes just checking in with, are you comfortable being weighed? Which I think Mm -hmm. is something that is often overlooked and something that we do over and over and over again in pregnancy and can be an incredibly triggering event for women, but it is rarely asked their comfort level around that. Mm -hmm. And so I try and give super simple ways and more structured ways that OBs can start to bring this into their practice Mm -hmm. in order to make it as seamless and as easy as possible without adding, you know, too, too many things where they are turned off by it. So limited already. (laughs) And certainly a lot of people are coming in with like patients are coming in with a lot of questions about other things. Well, it's hard to attend to everything in like whatever, 10 minutes or however short the appointment time is. Mm -hmm. It's so true. That is hard. So then they could be kind of assessing over multiple office visits. Mm -hmm. And I always recommend that because it can be something that shows up later and Mm -hmm. is often what I see, especially with my clients who maybe had a history of an eating disorder and then maybe have been in a good place in recovery for a while. They get pregnant, we're feeling great. And then the body's changing and towards the end, it's changing more and more people are commenting on your body and that can be a really triggering time. And so maybe first half of the pregnancy, things were going great, but second half of the pregnancy, things are feeling more complicated. And so I think some sort of check-in throughout the entirety of pregnancy is really helpful. I wonder how the maybe this is too specific, but like how weight bias changes throughout the pregnancy, like if, and it would be so individual too, but right, because people's bodies are changing. If let's say if somebody's like, quote unquote, not gaining enough weight versus mm-hmm. they're gaining more weight than is recommended by the doctor, they're going to get different recommendations. I guess, what are you seeing the difference between people who tend to have smaller bodies versus larger bodies and less weight gain versus more weight gain. Are you seeing all, all people? Yeah, I do. I see all body sizes and I definitely more often than not see it approached very differently. And this is again, not across the board. There are some amazing body neutral OBs out there, but I would say what I see more often is even if someone's losing weight, if they feel the baby is growing fine, then they are dismissive. They're like, oh, baby's tracking fine. You're fine. Even not sure why the mom's losing weight. Some do check in, but a lot don't. A lot of my clients will be like, I lost weight at my appointment again. And the, the doctor just said, the baby looks fine. So you're fine. And then what I'll see with women in larger body sizes who are gaining weight faster, even if the baby's tracking the same exact way as the person in the smaller body, I will still often see a recommendation be given, oh, you're gaining too much weight. This can cause increase in complications for you at birth and just kind of giving some statistics that can be true. But even if the baby's not tracking large, they're still more likely to give recommendations to change diet, stop weight gain, all these things that they didn't give to the person in the smaller body, or they'll show more concern for the person in the larger body than the person in the smaller body. And I see that happen a lot. Yeah, that is concerning for sure. I mean, it just adds so much pressure. 
sounds like, well, I imagine it could be vague to say it could create complications. Mm -hmm. Like that would be scary to hear. Yes. Um, And also what other information are they getting? Like what kind of complications? How serious is it? What is the real likelihood? Or is Mm -hmm. this like a general like, yeah, that kind of thing could happen. There's not really like a way to, to gauge unless you're getting really specific information about a very specific concern. Yes. And it is often vague. And then the moms just feel a lot of shame or a lot of guilt. And often they're not asked to give information about the way they eat or anything like that. And genetics does play a role in how we gain weight in pregnancy, our body going into pregnancy. And I have worked with many a mom who is in a larger body and is actually having a very balanced diet in pregnancy, they just are still gaining weight faster than the, you know, quote, recommended amount. And yet the doctor didn't ask them anything about their nutrition. They just made a recommendation based on a number they saw on the scale. Right. Again, like you said, this, they would not be giving recommendations to a mom who's losing weight, unless I assume it is like dangerous or they deemed it dangerous to mom or baby. Yes, absolutely. And I have seen OBs when the mom is losing weight at a certain rate or the baby is not growing appropriately. I absolutely see them jump in, but I feel like it's this huge middle population and myself included. I had gestational diabetes in both of my pregnancies, Mm -hmm. which creates a whole kind of stigma. (laughs) And I was struggling to gain weight towards the end. And in my third trimester, I was actually losing weight and no one said anything. And it wasn't until I brought it up that it was even addressed. And I was fairly dismissed. They were like, well, the baby's fine. And I was like, well, I don't feel good. I was like, I feel like I'm not getting enough nutrition and I'm a dietitian. I know what I should be doing. Mm -hmm. So imagine someone without the background or understanding how they might feel in this situation. And what if I had been intentionally restricting. And that's why I was losing weight, you know, just having some curiosity when we see things around weight going in a certain direction. Yeah. What are you seeing in regards to disordered eating or eating disorders as it relates to um, anxiety and pregnancy or postpartum? So I definitely see it in pregnancy too. A lot of what we do know, and who knows, you know, chicken or the egg, but there's a huge link between anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And so how I usually see it come about is anxiety and pregnancy, usually weight focused, either not gaining enough or gaining too much. So really, I see women struggle with both, but also a ton of future casting into postpartum of what will my body be like after I have the baby. And then what we know statistically in postpartum is that a woman who has had a history of an eating disorder, even if it was years prior, is at a significantly higher risk for postpartum depression and anxiety because of that eating disorder history. And they have in that first year of postpartum, a huge risk for that eating disorder coming back. And so a lot of what I work with in women, with women in pregnancy is one, connecting them with a therapist. I require pretty much all of my moms to have a therapist on board because it is a mental health issue. And that is the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then from the nutrition part of how can we start to have structures in place 
around this anxiety you have around food, how can we have a schedule or a plan in place to reduce that anxiety as much as possible? Yeah. I wonder what people's, I'm going to take a step back and take a broader view of just how people view dietitians when they're coming into your practice. Are they assuming that you're going to like tell them that they can't eat or like, what are the assumptions about going to a dietitian? Yeah. That's actually such a good question because I would say most people think of dietitians as people who help people lose weight (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that that's what dietitians do is that we help you figure out what's a good food and what's a bad food and how you can stay fit. And there are definitely dietitians who do that. And then there's kind of us non-diet dietitians is how we sort of refer to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I actually, in my discovery call that I do with every client before we actually schedule something is I tell them upfront that I am not a weight loss dietitian. I am a non-dietitian. My job is to have you develop a healthy relationship to food and a healthy relationship to your body. And I am weight neutral as to how your body responds to that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that ends our <laughs> work together right, 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 because right. Um, that is not what they're looking for. But much more often than not, that is actually kind of a breath of fresh air and the idea that, okay, I can talk about my body. I can talk about my food, how I feel about food and it be in a completely weight neutral environment. I imagine there are less of your type of dietitian than the other types. (laughs) Yes. It is a growing population though. So when I think about when I first graduated and, you know, 10 years ago, I knew of no non-diet dietitians. Everyone had a fairly weight bias, food bias way of approaching nutrition. And so this is definitely a different way. There's definitely pushback when people hear me say there's no such thing as a bad food. There's always someone ready to have something to say about that. So it is a smaller population, but we are out there. So I always Mm -hmm. encourage moms to search for non-dietitians or health at every size dietitians, things like that, that can really help align you with recovering that relationship with food. Wow. It is so deeply, deeply ingrained the yes. like the diet culture parts of this from, I think it's, it was just so big in the seventies and eighties, you know, so much so that it's just like in the air. It's like what people think of mm-hmm. um, prior to that. I'm sure there were other types of things, but this, there was like the jazzercise, you know, age and the diet pill mm-hmm. age. And oh yeah, I remember that being so prevalent at that time. And certainly mm-hmm. it, it takes, you know, different characteristics now, but it's sort of just in, it kind of ingrained in the mentality that even the word diet or dietitian is so closely <laughs> related with weight yeah, loss and it shaming. It is. It really isn't. Even I look back in horror when I think <laughs> about the counseling I did when I was first out of school and I was on a metabolic weight loss team at a hospital and, but you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And we're meant to grow and evolve in our mm-hmm. fields. But yes, I would say there is quite a stigma 
And it is hard to undo it, you know, when there's a small group of people saying, no, it can be done differently. But then the rest of the world and the culture around you is saying, well, no, you should diet. You should want to lose all that baby weight. You should, you know, make sure you don't gain too much. You know, all of these things that are really raised, it's so hard to put those down and to think of those as being possibly harmful. Which has to contribute i mean to the depression and anxiety there's like whatever the internalized stuff if you already Mm -hmm. are dealing with or have previously had challenges with eating disorder or disordered eating and then in come all of these ideas about what you should do during pregnancy and postpartum it absolutely Absolutely. has to contribute it does you know just from the the mental strain of it right of it's never good enough i'm you know i haven't bounced back quick enough or I don't do this enough or whatever. I mean, postpartum is just such a intense time. And then just from a biological standpoint, whether we're undernourished or overnourished, we're impacting our postpartum hormones. We're impacting our serotonin, our dopamine and our cortisol. So all of these things that can also contribute to that anxiety and depression piece become really elevated and you're sleep deprived, which makes anxiety and depression worse. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our ability to nourish ourselves is circumstantial. We have this new baby. We're so focused on feeding this baby. We forget to yeah. feed ourselves. Right. So there's so many ways our nutrition in postpartum becomes skewed, which then impacts our anxiety and postpartum and our anxiety and depression and postpartum as well. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at OneSkin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using one skin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. 
Right. I like how you said that it's circumstantial. Plus you alluded to like the genetic components, sleep deprivation, and then it's too complex to whittle it down to like, you should eat less. (laughs) Yeah, I know it feels like our culture thinks that's the answer to everything, but it's really not. (laughs) No, it's it's like quite the opposite. Like I know in so many ways. So Um, many ways. How have you seen the, I guess, depression or anxiety impact people's ability? I'm kind of thinking from the inverse relationship, Mm -hmm. like their capacity or challenges with hearing your like recommendations or um, Mm -hmm. suggestions on the more neutral body neutral approaches. So it definitely has an impact. So I think when we're having either anxiety or depression or a combination of both in postpartum, it can really limit that kind of executive functioning piece. We're just, I'm making so many decisions about this baby. I don't have the brain space to make decisions for myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do whatever is the path of least resistance. And so for some people that's, I'm just not going to stress about eating, which means I may not eat hardly at all during the day or food is my go-to comfort. And so that's really what I'm going to lean into right now because I'm so overwhelmed in all other capacities. And so it can feel really hard to find any space of movement in either of those places because the overwhelm, the anxiety, the the depression just make even small steps feel like they just can't be done. Like there's just, I have this human I have to take care of. I can't focus on myself. And so what I'd really try and emphasize is you are the priority mom to be a good mom. Like if we can figure out some ways to stabilize nutrition, it's going to help you be that better mom. It's going to actually help with the depression and the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that is why I usually require a partnership with therapists because that's the key. That's what pulls it all together. I can give some concrete structure and support and education, but if we're not really focusing on that anxiety and depression piece, then none of that would even matter. Right. And when you were saying that, it made me think and kind of remember for myself, actually, that there's kind of an all or nothing approach often to the, like I had gestational diabetes in my first pregnancy. And I went to a dietitian and she gave me like the tips on having protein with this and like pairing foods. It was never about weight loss. But even with that, it felt like if I don't do all of this the right way, then it's bad. Like the internal thing, like the pressure, like, oh, I got to make sure I'm doing all this to Mm -hmm. keep my body healthy, as opposed to like, a well, there are things you can do that help. But if you can't do every single thing, it doesn't mean you're bad or wrong or, you know, I'm thinking of it in terms now of how depression and anxiety like play tricks on your mind and why it would be hard to incorporate stuff if you felt like you had to do it all. Yes. And I do see that, you know, of like, well, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't find time for breakfast. So like, what's the point? It even, it does feel all or nothing. Like if I can't follow all of the recommendations or if I can't fix how I relate to food at night, then there's no point in doing any of this. Mm -hmm. And so what I often advise clients is I'm like, let's take it back until we find the yes. (laughs) So maybe (laughs) we can't, 
have breakfast every day. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, can we have like a granola bar by the nightstand that you open and have a couple of bites before you get up and start your day? Like we kind of just work. Let's keep going back until we find the yes. Mm -hmm. I love that. Because then it seems possible. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't feel like another really hard thing that you have to do. It would make it even harder if you had a history of an eating disorder where typically things are very rigid. Yes. And the thing I remind my clients all the time, you know, it definitely started with my eating disorder clients, but even just my new postpartum moms who are just seeing me just for really support, maybe not necessarily any disordered eating is every meal is a new opportunity. There's no messing it up. So maybe the whole first half of the day went terribly (laughs) and the baby was fussy or you were tired or whatever every meal is a new opportunity. There's no such thing as it didn't go well. Mm -hmm. And to, if we can keep that in mind, it can feel better. It can feel less shameful. It can feel like, oh, I did this wrong. It's Mm -hmm. just, okay, that didn't go as planned. Here's my next opportunity. And to try and keep it in that mindset versus this is good or this is bad. That's super useful. I think for everything, but especially for during pregnancy and postpartum when there's so much change and adjusting and all of that all the time, it's like you kind of have to fight against the programming of whatever it is. Like I'll start that diet on Monday. It's always Monday Mm -hmm. for some reason. It's always um, Monday. (laughs) It's always Monday. (laughs) Mondays are hard enough. Let's not. They are. Let's not. (laughs) Let's not add a diet to that. Right. Or the like pressures of people feel like their body is supposed to mm-hmm. look like or do in this period of time. Oh, it's too much. It's, it's too, too much. much. And often it's not correct. You know, I will get so many moms who are like, I'm breastfeeding and my body's holding on to weight. And that has a lot to do with the false narrative that breastfeeding is how weight just falls right off of you. Yeah. And for some people who are genetically predisposed for that, it does happen, but it's not even really related to the breastfeeding. They are just genetically more predisposed to losing weight easier. When in fact, biologically, we're meant, our body is designed to store weight during breastfeeding because we need so much fat to produce milk. And that is not really widely known. And so I get a lot of very distressed moms who feel like I can't lose this baby weight. And we just do a lot of education around what false messaging there is that is Mm -hmm. so hard to ignore. And also why things are happening. I try and give a lot of information of like, you're not imagining any of this. Mm -hmm. This is why you still have fat on your body. You're Mm -hmm. still nursing. You're still, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. And it's okay if that stays. And we're not pre-baby. So I hate that term. Get back to your pre-baby body. We're no longer that. We have now grown and produced a human and our body is allowed to show signs of that. Let's put that on a bumper sticker, a t-shirt or something like that needs to be everywhere. It is allowed. And I have personal experience of that. I didn't lose weight uh, with nursing. And I had that feeling like, aren't I supposed to be losing weight? How come everybody else gets to lose all this weight? And I'm just sitting here nursing this baby and nothing. Um, But right, it was the messaging that I had internalized and then blamed myself for. Yeah, That's where it gets mm-hmm. so messed up is like that impacts mental health. And it was mm-hmm. a part of a small part, but a part of the kind of mental health journey I w- was on. 
But we don't question like, hmm, maybe this is the a societal message that I've integrated. <laughs> and now I believe about myself, but it's total BS. Like it just feels like we're doing something wrong. It does. It it absolutely does. And and even for myself, I had those thoughts. So mm-hmm. it's so hard to not let it seep in. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't occur to most people to say, okay, no, this is not mine. This yeah. is a message that I have been said, but that is not my truth. And mm-hmm. it is so hard to separate those. And I feel like, especially when I work with first time moms, there's already so many things they feel like they're doing poorly at. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, And so it feels like food and body are the things we can control. Totally. Yeah. And we want something to control <laughs> in right. postpartum. Right. And so then it really feels like, well, I can't even do well of the thing I can control when really there's just so many things outside of our control, even with food and body. Yeah, that is such a really good point that, you know, is another contributor to feeling anxious or feeling depressed, like that out of control feeling is really real. And it has a very real impact. And you're right that in some ways it could feel like the easiest thing to control and in some ways the Mm -hmm. hardest thing to control for sure. But again, it's like, if you're not sleeping, I remember having this conversation with can't remember with who but like, if you're not sleeping, you're losing like one of your main sources of energy. And if you need to get energy from somewhere else, it's it could be food that you're getting it from. But people aren't okay. remembering like, oh, I'm not sleeping. So I'm like, just depleted. And I might, mm-hmm. you know, need energy from another source. And that might be food, it might be, I don't know, yes. it could be. But it's again, it's all like, sort of siloed and taken out of mm-hmm. context that yeah. I'm just eating too much. Exactly. In those and exactly. And that's such a good point because there's so much that happens that we have these mechanisms in our body that are designed to support us, but are sort of either misunderstood or demonized in our diet culture. Whereas the lack of sleep is a great, great example. When we have a lack of sleep, we have a part of our brain that kicks in and says, okay, we need an energy source. Mm-hmm. Let's send a craving for a carbohydrate. A carbohydrate is a food that turns into sugar. Sugar is our quickest energy source. Great. Go, go brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. so, you know, women are like, oh my gosh, I just, all I'm craving are carbs and that's so bad. And you know, <sighs> blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, there's a, actual mechanism happening that's doing that. You're not imagining that your body actually needs that. Yes, we bring in nutrition education too, of like also add protein if you can, so you don't crash and you also need, you know, fats for breast milk. But, you know, I think there's just this lack of understanding around why our body is asking for certain things around food, why we have certain behaviors around food and postpartum that are completely natural, but feel overwhelming or scary or out of control. So uh, for the people who are out there listening to this and getting all this really great information, and maybe even wondering for themselves if they have something going, how would somebody know, I guess, from behaviors or patterns that you see as a dietitian, how would somebody Mm -hmm. know that they might be struggling with disordered eating, maybe even versus just like, it's hard to find time to eat? Usually the things I see the most and are usually some of the red flags that come up for people is one is food something that feels dominant to me? Like, am I always either thinking about food or worried about my food? Mm. When either am I going to have food next or am I eating too much? You know, just this kind of recurring intrusive 
thinking about food. I, yeah. That is probably one of the biggest things I see is it just taking up a lot of brain space, thinking mm-hmm. about food. If you find yourself denying your physical cues, that is also a big one. So I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat or I'm really full, but I'm going to keep eating. These can also be some signs that there is something off with the connection or the relationship, the inability to honor our physical cues. Mm. Also, if you feel out of control around food, so that is another thing and kind of a like trigger word or pain point that I hear brought up a lot in my sessions of, Mm. I just feel like the food controls me and not that I have any control. So like either I'm too afraid to eat foods because it's a bad food or I was taught I shouldn't eat this. Or when I start eating this food, it feels like I don't know how to cut it off. So this feeling of loss of control around food, those are probably some of the biggest ones. And then for some people, it is just noticing. I feel like my food relationship's different than others, right? So kind of almost just what's the landscape around you? You know, are you eating a lot less than other people in your house? Or are you feeling like you have to hide the way you eat? So this kind of noticing of different. Mm. And if that feels, and usually that will bring up some sort of feeling, right? Like I have shame or guilt Mm. or something, some sort of negative feeling emotion connected to my food. You Mm. know, food should be much more neutral than that. Mm -hmm. And so when we are having those feelings is when I would say it's worth exploring more. Yeah. Thank you for all of those points. I was thinking too, that those pointers would be for anybody at any body size, Um, not just like I think what is, again, the like societal messaging is if you feel like you're eating too much, then that would be mean that you have larger body and it doesn't necessarily mean that. No. Right. No. So we're talking about all and body I, sizes. Exactly. And I used to, I remember earlier on really link weight to those things. Like, so if you've lost a lot of weight or if you've gained a lot of weight and certainly that's data I gather when I work with people. But one thing I've learned is that is just, it's too inconsistent of a piece of data is some of the most restrictive clients I've ever had, their body has maintained a weight magically. And then some of the people who have struggled with pretty severe bulimia or binge eating disorder, they haven't gained a ton of weight, you know? And so weight is really not a helpful piece of data. Uh, most of the time. And so I really base it more on kind of behaviors around food, Mm. less so what is happening with the body. Thank you for that. So if people are noticing this for Mm -hmm. themselves, about themselves, what do you recommend people do? What are some steps people can take or look into? Sure. So I recommend a team approach. So if you're not already working with a perinatal therapist, I would seek one out. If there is a pretty severe eating disorder, trying to find an eating disorder therapist is going to be really helpful. But a lot of times a perinatal specialist is really, really helpful just with the nuances of hormones and PPD and PPA. And then to also search for a dietitian. I think that nutrition piece 
is really important and getting accurate nutrition education into the picture and the unique nutrition needs in pregnancy and postpartum from a weight neutral perspective is really helpful. And so looking for search words like health at every size, eating disorder, dietitian, non-dietitian, these are some key words to look Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. to increase the likelihood you're going to get someone who will be weight neutral. Fantastic. I'm really grateful that you've shared all of this information with us. And it's especially useful to have these tangible things to do and to look for. Mm -hmm. Because I imagine if somebody goes to look for a dietitian, what they're going to see first is the weight loss focused folks and how defeating that could feel. Yes. Right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation and I know really very supportive and helpful to everyone who's listening. So thank you for coming on and sharing all of this with us. Absolutely. I love getting to talk about it. (laughs) Spread the word. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You can connect with Catherine on Instagram at dietitian underscore Katie lady, or you can find her on her website, kgnutrition.org, where you will also find information about an upcoming retreat in January on body positivity for women. Having this kind of information and education is really, really important to people who are dealing with eating disorders or disordered eating. And what we've talked about today is that some people aren't fully even aware that they are dealing with something like that. And come find me in the Mom and Mind podcast on Instagram and on threads at Mom and Mind and support this work that I'm doing by following and sharing posts, sharing these episodes. It is the best way to support this work. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.